Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 304. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 304 you're listening to. My guest today is Joyce Lieberman. Joyce has been working at WHYY in Philadelphia for the last 44 years, starting in 1976, working 11 years as a technician, and then the next 11 years as a technical director of Fresh Air. That's right, as in Terry Gross, Fresh Air. And then 22 years as a radio engineering supervisor. Joyce and I met at a dinner in Los Angeles probably about four or five years ago that was attended by former WCA guest J.J. Blair and David Glasser. They introduced me to Joyce, and when I discovered that she worked for WHYY and, of course, Terry Gross, I flipped out a bit and began lobbying her to come on the show. Fast forward five years later, I get an email from Joyce saying, hey, I've got some free time. I'm ready to do this. So we have a great conversation about Joyce's career and all the details of WHYY. So very excited to bring you Joyce Lieberman here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Allow me to spew some random information your way. Many of you who have listened to the show for a long time have heard me mention Moto the Bulldog. Maybe he's been snoring in the background during an interview, snoring during one of my monologues. Maybe I've mentioned him in a story here or two over the last six years. Well, I'm sorry to report Moto is no longer with us. Uh, He developed a thing called Cushing's disease, and it's a pretty bad thing for a dog to get. And the treatment was as bad as the disease itself. So unfortunately, his health rapidly deteriorated, and we determined that the humane thing to do would be to put him down. Now, as you would imagine, that's pretty sad, especially for my kids. So we did a thing where we had a vet come to the house. I'd never heard of people doing that before, but I discovered it in the uh, course of discussions with with the veterinarians that I was speaking with. So we had somebody come to the house and they did it in such a great way, such a a peaceful way for Moto to go out. And he was surrounded by all of us and he didn't suffer in the process of that. They gave him a a painkiller and immediately this tense bulldog sitting there laying incapacitated uh, just began to relax. And then he eventually fell asleep and began snoring like he used to do. After that, they put him to sleep with the uh, euthanasia medicine. And it was just a, a very great way for him to go out and a relaxed way to go out without a lot of trauma or drama. And uh, yeah, I'm going to miss him. I'm going to miss him greatly. And I'm kind of bummed to have to tell you that, that, uh, that he's gone. So I'm going to raise a coffee cup and say cheers to Moto. It's a fantastic dog to our family. And uh, we will just miss him forever. So cheers to you, Moto. Ah, all right. Well, let's go on to uh, some happier things. I had the great pleasure this week of getting back into a recording studio and recording a band. 
complete with masks, social distancing, the whole nine yards. And it was a kind of a complicated setup. It was two drummers, two bass players, two guitar players. It was all instrumental, and it was meant to create a bed of music for their singer to eventually do his thing on, which he's going to do separately. But uh, a lot of uh, a lot of microphones, a lot of inputs. Uh, I'm sure a few uh, phasey things here and there in the live room because we didn't even isolate anybody. There were no headphones. It was really fun. It was a lot of fun, actually. And it felt like going on vacation to get out of the house. You know, I love my family, but to get away from the kids. Uh, we had just put Moto down the day before, so it was good to just get out of the house, you know, have a change of scenery and a change of focus to record music again. It's just been months for me. So really had a great time with these guys. Got to do a little bit of experimenting, kind of in tribute to Sylvia Massey. We had a hydrophone sitting in a big tub of water in the center of the live room, absorbing all of that sound that was in the room of, of these multiple drummers, guitar players, and bass players. And you'd be surprised at how much detail actually came through. It just sounded like a band, but underwater. I'd share it with you, but you know how it is. You got to respect the band's sonic privacy, if you will, and let them do their thing without trying to showcase, hey, look what I did. Anyhow, it was a fun time. I encourage you all to uh, explore in your next session something wacky. Uh, once again, as Sylvia Massey encourages us all to do. So a fun time, definitely. And we did all this at 25th Street Recording in Oakland, California. Fantastic studio. And I was uh, assisted by, I should say co-piloted by, my friend Gabriel Shepard, who is a former WCA guest himself. He was on in the early episodes, and he is now the head engineer there at 25th Street. And what a great engineer. He could have done it himself, but the band had me along, so they got two engineers. We really benefited from having Gabriel join us in the session. So cheers to you, Gabriel. Job well done, friend. Ah, what else? Ah, here's one thing for you. Being in 25th Street, uh, it's a beautiful studio, API vision console, a ton of outboard gear, microphones, everything that you would need to do a session, and then that times 100. Many, many choices. What was interesting is it felt comfortable to stretch out there and make all these choices, but it felt even better, surprisingly enough, to come back to my home studio where I don't have as many choices and get back into an environment that I know well sonically and can make decisions in easily and have fewer choices. Now, yeah, I have a lot of plugins like I'm sure many of you do, but, but the choices and the layout are much smaller in comparison. So that actually felt really good and gave me a different appreciation for my own space. So if I can get you to walk away with anything from this rambling conversation I'm having with myself is that get out, try to do a session, you know, COVID safe and all that, but try to do a session so you get a different perspective perspective. Uh, I know for many of you, it's been months. For me, it's been months uh, going out to another studio. Now, obviously, this is different if you have your own studio. So if you get an opportunity to go and work in another location, I think is the point. When you come back to your kind of home base, we'll, we'll call it, you might just find yourself having a different appreciation for that space and what you know and love about that space. Anyhow, it was great to get out and do a session and uh, really, really enjoyable to come back home to uh, appreciate what I've got here in my home studio. So that's it for now. Nice little ramble there. Cheers to all of you. I'm raising a coffee cup and finishing off this coffee. Mm. Thanks for listening.
Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Joyce Lieberman here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Joyce, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Could you tell us what your current role is there? In, you're in a WHYY in Philadelphia? That's right. Yes. I'm at WHYY. I'm the radio engineering supervisor, which means I get to troubleshoot problems, do a lot of maintenance, keep up with maintenance on computers, on consoles, on on equipment. If I can't work on it directly, I have a couple of other people that work on. I don't do component maintenance, but there's not a lot of equipment where you have to open it up and really repair it. I take care of the TELUS uh, call-in system. I take care of lots of our systems. I take care of our EAS. I make sure that we're legal with the FCC. I make sure that the sound 
that we send out is very, very good. We try to send out a high quality signal out to the world here in radio and on the internet too. Mm -hmm. That's mostly it <laughs> for right now. But the way I, I was introduced to you, in fact, I, I was telling the story over this past week. I was at a studio and I said, this Friday, I'm interviewing Joyce Lieberman, who has been Terry Gross's engineer from Fresh Air since the beginning. Right. And for anybody who listens to NPR and listens to Terry, that's public radio rock stardom right there. Yeah, Terry is amazing. I was doing the Fresh Air show in 1976 or 1977, and she had already been here a couple of years. But currently, I don't drive the show and I don't record the show every day. Probably for the last 10 years, I've been doing more maintenance and overall station work. However, I get to install new equipment in the Fresh Air room. I get to make sure that the audio going out is really good audio. When something goes down in the fresh air room, I run in there and get something working, work around things. So I, I don't work on the show directly. Terry does credit me every week. She credits me for more engineering help from Joyce Lieberman. So it, it's very nice to be credited like that. I feel like I'm integral to getting the sound very good, but it's Audrey Bentham, one of the engineers who works here, who does the daily recordings and listens to all the interviews that Terry does as they're doing them. So I don't have that pleasure anymore. Ah. I get to run around the station and stop in in fresh air and then go do some other work and keep going back and forth. Well, let's jump back in, in time. When did audio become relevant in your life? Listening to music, audio became relevant in my life. That so was my twin sister who played guitar and sang. I would sing with her, but I don't have a very good voice. But we listened to Peter, Paul, and Mary, Bob Dylan, more folk music then, and then it morphed into rock and roll. And then I guess more when I was like in 11th grade, the world opened up to me with all the amazing rock groups that were out there then. I graduated high school in 1969 it was at a super high point of amazing music. And I'm sure every decade has a super high point of amazing music too. That's the music side. My radio side comes from, we lived in Brooklyn till I was about five. My dad and mom moved us out to Long Island. We lived in Hicksville, Long Island. And as a five-year-old, it was incredible. As a young kid, it was great. Me and my twin sister, we rode our bikes all over the place like we were exploring a new world. When I was in high school, I used to listen to Pacifica Radio from New York City, and they did lots of stories. There were stories about gypsies, stories about beatniks, you know, or they'd interview current people who were in the, in the village, and it was really fascinating. And there was lots of anti-Vietnam War programs on. So I, I got introduced to uh, the whole anti-war movement and the leftist movement through radio, through Pacifica Radio. And it was the stories on radio that intrigued me, really were fascinating. And when did you consider the technical aspects of what you were hearing? When did that enter in your mind as something you were interested in? That came later. When I was a senior in high school, I finally could tolerate school. I used to hate, hate, hate school. It was boring. You know, I was really good at math and science, which was great, but 
Some of my friends would laugh at me, but me and my twin sister held forth and we did great in in math and science. In New York, there were these tests, they were called Regents tests. So you had to get really good marks on them. We'd always get like 98s on the tests. I liked it, but I wasn't like, oh, this is great. I'm going to get an engineering degree at that point. I wasn't thinking that way. In my senior year, I realized that I could read anything I wanted. I wasn't limited to what was going on in school. It was more like I could delve into subjects. It was like, oh my goodness, there's anthropology and history and philosophy. So I was intrigued by just this world opening up. I took a theater class. I took a philosophy class. So I was lucky. I had already done all my requirements in high school Mm. and I didn't have to take certain courses. And then I, I went to college and I went upstate New York. It was part of the State University of New York system. Mm-hmm. I was at, in New Paltz, which was only an hour and a half from New York. My twin went to Buffalo, which was very much further away, like eight or nine way, hours away. I majored in philosophy and then I had a double major in urban studies. I guess as a senior, I got involved with you know, a boyfriend and the boyfriend was in Philadelphia. He went to University of Pennsylvania. He was studying architecture. So I get to college and I hitchhike to Philadelphia lots of times by myself. I got amazing rides. I'm so lucky to be fine and not to be <laughs> messed up from any experience that I had. What year was were you hitchhiking? What year was that? It was 1969 and 1970 to 71. Wow. Right. There were a lot of people hitchhiking and it felt like, oh, it's almost our right to be able to put our thumb out and get a ride. It's just such a, like a, a great opening to go places, to try to be a little freer or not be confined because we didn't have a car. Years later, I, I, I thought, what an idiot. <laughs> you know, that could have been really, really devastating. I can't even imagine people doing that today. No, I can't at all. It's a different world. So you headed off to Philadelphia. Yes. Yeah, so first I was in New Paltz for a couple of years. And so the hitchhiking also had to do with music. And one thing that was a really big influence on the music that I listened to was that I tried to get to Woodstock. That was going to be like the be all and end all. I was looking forward to that a lot the summer of 1969. And me and my boyfriend and my twin sister headed to Woodstock. My boyfriend had his mother's new Cutlass Supreme car. And we thought, oh, it's going to be a great weekend. You know, we had our camping gear. Everything was all figured out. We had food with us and everything. We got off the New York Thruway and get to Route 17 and all the cars were stopped. It was 10 miles to where Woodstock was. And, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. And everyone said, you have to leave your car and walk, carry all your gear and walk there. And we thought about it <laughs> probably for about an hour and a half. The three of us sat there weighing, you know, the whole thing. And we decided not to go. My boyfriend couldn't leave his mother's new Cutlass Supreme, avocado green Cutlass Supreme. It was oh, just, we couldn't do it. That would so, have been tragic. <laughs> I'm, I'm sh- in retrospect, I'm sure the car would have been fine, you know, when we got back. Because <laughs> who's going to steal a, a, a green Cutlass? Yeah, who would want it, you know? (laughs) There were so many cars just abandoned on the road. Not abandoned, but just 
sitting there parked on the road. So we didn't go. And I was morose. I had like angst. I say angst, but I like to call it angst. 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 (laughs) I'm nowhere in the country we say angst, but me and my boyfriend were angstful. (laughs) So then I was determined to hear lots of music. I, I heard Janis Joplin in Philadelphia in October of 1969, There was this Quaker City rock festival with B.B. King and Santana and Joe Cocker, you know, Mm. just incredible. We had Jefferson Airplane at New Paltz at one point. The Who was there. The band, the band was really close by. Big Pink, the house that they practiced in was right there. So those couple of years, I was involved with hearing lots of music. I ended up loving Philadelphia. I really wanted to be with my boyfriend and I wanted to try a different place. So I I transferred colleges. I went to Rutgers in New Brunswick. And then finally, I I graduated from college. I get to Philadelphia in January of 1973. So I was looking for jobs downtown Philadelphia. It was January. It was sunny and crisp air. It was beautiful out. And I was getting to know Philadelphia and listening to radio in Philadelphia, which was great. And then I got this job doing a crime survey. And I was mostly in a poor black neighborhood asking people about what crimes had occurred. And it gave me a whole new perspective on Philadelphia. And that was really important too, to be driving around and making appointments with people in a different part of the city than where I lived. So it was good to get more of an overall perspective about the vastness of the city and the diverse groups of people that live in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And then in March of that same year, I was looking for different things to do, and I found a group called Radio Free Women at WHYY. So I joined a group. It was a fluctuating group of maybe... 10 to 15 women. We did a weekly feminist radio show called Learning to Fly. It was a half an hour. Most of the producers who worked at WHYY, or in fact, all the producers, were not paid. It was all volunteers. And there were several music shows. There was a reggae show. There was a jazz show. There was a rock and roll or a little bit rockabilly And we were one of the volunteer groups. I worked on shows like women and legal issues. I did something on old age and I got to interview this woman named Maggie Kuhn, who was a gray panther. It was a leftist group of older people that tried to get better conditions for older people, just advocated for things that older people would need. And she she was awesome. Modeled, of course, after the Black Panthers. Yes, except, of course, you know, the people with gray hair. Got it. (laughs) Right, right. I did some kind of montage type show. I don't remember what the topic was, but I didn't want to just do a linear interview, me say, this is what they're talking about, or pose some questions and then interview. It's more music and sounds and more creative. And I don't think it got a lot of recognition from my Radio Free Women Collective, but that's okay. (laughs) That's interesting that you started out on that side of the glass, that side of the microphone, so to speak. For a brief amount of time, I thought, well, maybe, maybe I could be a radio reporter. And I think I applied to a job then, and it was a decent interview. I didn't get the job. But then I started getting 
a little anxious, like, all right, I wrote papers when I was in college and I, I did fine in college, but my anxiety level went up. It was like, I didn't want to continue writing papers. I just didn't have that side that was like gung-ho or, yeah, I could write up this interview or... As a reporter, one needs to be able to write with facility, in mm -hmm. my opinion. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So then I was on the path to try to figure out what I wanted to do. And my mother had always told my twin sister and my oldest sister that girls should be nurses or teachers. And beyond that, they should really uh, have good relationships with their husband. I'm trying to think of the word she would have used, but kind of support their husbands. I'm not sure that's the word she would have used, but in effect, that's it. Be there for your family. Be there for your husband. Being a teacher and a nurse, you have a decent career. You could make some money, but you'd always be there to make dinner and clean the house and stuff like that. That really resonated with your feminist ideals, I'm sure. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> So my older sister became a nurse and she worked in Manhattan. It, it opened her world to at least be in New York City. And she, she loved that. And she, she was a good nurse and she liked it. She retired a couple of years ago. And then my twin sister became a teacher. She was proficient in French. So she became a French teacher. And hmm. That worked for a really long time. And then she added on Spanish. I was very glad for her. And she spent many trips in France and she's done wonderfully with that. So after deciding I wasn't going to be a teacher or a nurse, then I had a, a dilemma. What was I going to do? So it, Radio Free Women was instrumental in this because then I was at WHYY and I got to see what the engineers are doing, what they do. And at that time, individual producers could not edit their own pieces. We were using reel-to-reels at that point. We'd have to sit down with, with an engineer and tell them where to cut and they would splice the tape. It was very cumbersome, but I thought, oh, I want to be an engineer who's splicing the tape. It gave me that idea at least. So I thought, maybe I'll do that. And I looked into this school. It was called Philadelphia Wireless Technical Institute. And I thought, oh, that seems cool. It was a school that one would go to after the military to get more substantial skills if you were going into radio broadcasting or TV broadcasting. So I looked into that school and then it took me a little while to get there. This is 1975 now. I haven't progressed very far. <laughs> <laughs> We're working our way through the time period there. That's fine. Yes, yes. So I was working for the crime survey that ended and I still didn't find a job in urban studies, urban planning in any of these private small companies. And a friend said, oh, there's this trip that's going to Cuba. There's a group called the Venceremos Brigade. And for nine weeks, they take people down to Cuba and you help build housing. And they wanted to keep this contingent of Americans coming down, both for, for the Cuban government to say, look, there's Americans that are coming here, but also for different leftist groups in this country to say, we don't think the government should say that we can't go to a certain place. Mm -hmm. So I was told the FBI would come ask me questions or whatever, and I'd end up having like some record with the FBI if I did this trip. My parents tried to get me to not do it, but I decided to go. So I went with another person from Radio Free Women, my good friend Dennis. So we both went, and it was really interesting. For the housing construction that we were doing, we were wheeling wheelbarrows full of cement to where the things were being built. And then the workers in Cuba were actually doing the skilled work. We, we did a lot of 
digging ditches and wheeling bricks or cement or whatever over to where they needed it. And we also saw how there wasn't a lot of technology that was there. The Americans had pulled out the cars that were there were from the 50s, but they didn't have a high technology. And then on the weekends, we'd get to go into Havana or to other places. They took us on rides and we got to see most of the whole country. And then we were working five days a week and waking up early and doing the work. One place we went to visit was a, a high school that specialized in electronics. So we went to this high school and all these young people were soldering things and building circuit boards and they were totally immersed in that. And then I thought, when I go back home, I'll enroll in Philadelphia Wireless Technical Institute. So I did. <laughs> it took going to Cuba to figure that one out, huh? Right. To actually <laughs> push me to do it. Yeah. That here, here are these wonderful students doing this and maybe I could do that. I ended up learning basic electronic theory and the next course was radio theory and we got to build a, a radio on a flat board and that gave me more information, more knowledge about how all those circuits work and frequencies and stuff like that. Did that give you the educational ammunition to get into WHYY? Yes, it did. It really did. Maybe I was in school for a year and then WHYY had a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. It was a minorities training grant to hire a woman in broadcasting because in at that time there were very few women in broadcasting. There were a few women in TV and few women in radio. So the station got the grant and then they advertised for a job. And I, I knew about it from being at the station every other week with Radio Free Women. So I applied for the job. I heard that 30 people applied for the job and out of the 30, maybe three were qualified. Mm -hmm. And I got the job and I was thrilled to get the job. It was just awesome. So I remember starting the job on July 19th, 1976, and just being thrilled. Summertime in Philadelphia, getting a job at a pretty monumental radio station. So I, I came to the station and I was introduced around to everybody. And I remember everyone was very friendly and nice. And I got to be trained in several different departments. Maybe it was two or three weeks in each department. First, I did videotape down in the basement where we had videotape. You'd put a two-inch videotape on a machine and then play it. If it was during a production, you'd be on headsets and the director would call for the playback. So you'd play it back, then you'd have to roll it to the next spot that's needed. I did TV on-air switching. So that's switching between programs and interstitials. The interstitials, we're public TV, so it's not advertisements. It's promotions for other shows or underwriters. So for TV, it was every hour or half hour, you do this switching. And you have to take into account the timing. So if you want to put a videotape on the air, you have to start it rolling 10 seconds before it actually hits the air. So to do a break took a lot of planning and working out a sequence of events to happen. So I, I learned that pretty well. I was in radio for about three weeks and that seemed really interesting. I was really open to which area of the station will I work and they, they really wanted me to 
get a, a flavor of everything. I ended up settling in on-air switching for a while. And I learned from people that were very proficient at what they do. And I did find my parents were thrilled that I got a job. They couldn't believe that <laughs> I come back from Cuba. I go to electronics school. They say, what's going to end up with that? But that made more sense to them than studying philosophy and yeah. urban studies. So then when I got a job at a TV radio station, mm-hmm. they almost got it. You know, they, they were like close to like, all right, I, I could understand this. But they still didn't understand what I was doing. You know, I tried to explain the TV on air switching. And that was maybe a little bit over their heads? Well, they just didn't get it. But what made them understand, <laughs> I'm laughing because of how they reacted. So they come to the station and I wasn't working that day. And the guys who had taught me how to do this were explaining to my mother and father what is done, what this job is. And then my friend Bob Alls Sr. said, and occasionally there's a mistake and you get black on the air. There's nothing on the air. And my father says, oh, so Joyce could be doing that. She could she could mess up. And everyone in uh, New York City would have black on the air. There would be nothing there. And I just thought that was so funny. They they understood it more from the mistake that I could make rather than from the the task at hand. But then they understood it after that. You know, they really eventually they got it. it. Yes. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. With them shifting you around to different departments to give you a flavor of all these different possibilities, ultimately, who made the decision of where you would end up? Was it you or was it the station? It was actually where there was a position open. They definitely were gearing me to do the on-air switching. But there were shifts that I could do in the videotape room also. So I was traveling back and forth between those areas. When the 18-month period of 
training was over and it was a very generous period, they asked me to stay on. They wanted me to continue work, which I was thrilled about. And then one of the radio engineers left the station and went to another job. And then I asked to have that job in radio. That's when my radio world really started. You have this kind of explorer's mindset. With that, coming into radio, was your mind blown wide open with what you were about to set forth doing? I don't think it was that exactly. I think it was several years later after I felt more skilled that I was seeing an opening for so many more things I could do in radio and with audio and with sound recording. It was more several years later. At the time, it was like, oh, I um, really got to learn this and figure it out. So I started reading some of the manuals associated with the equipment that, that we had at the time. I started out on a console that had potentiometers. It was a McCurdy console. Oh, as opposed to faders. As opposed to faders. Thank you. That wasn't unusual to me. That was what I knew. I hadn't explored different radio stations and what equipment they had. And there wasn't this internet where I could just look at things all the time. So we had potentiometers. We didn't have faders, but that's how you adjust the levels with the potentiometer. We had VU meters so we could see the levels. At the time we had we were mostly music. We had morphed from being mostly volunteers at the station, doing lots of different music shows, different news shows. There was some show called Sane Views the World, which was an anti-nuclear war show. There was What's Left of the News. There was another maybe in the center news show, but there were various shows. And then the station decided that besides just paying the station manager and a program director, they needed to pay people for doing shows. And they decided to concentrate on classical music. So the classical music consisted of, there was one combo host who did his own shift. And then there was a host that didn't want to do their shift. So a, an engineer would run the console while the host would select the LPs that are being played. So I, I ended up doing that shift quite a lot. The um, host would sit in a, a booth with a microphone and I would put the LPs on the, on the turntables and adjust the levels. And then he'd talk, we'd go back and forth between that. And then there were some shows that were playback of programs from different networks. NPR was just beginning at that point. And when I started, Terry Gross was already doing Fresh Air. And Terry Gross started in 1975 doing a local show that was three hours long. She usually did two separate hour-long interviews, sometimes a third. Often the third was on reel-to-reel -reel tape from a different station. And it was called that you bicycle the tape. So the tape goes around to different radio stations across the country, and they call it the tapes on the bicycle getting distributed. Of course, it was being mailed from one station to the other. There was right. actually not a person riding the bicycle across the country. Not and, literally. Not, okay. not literally, right. And I did do fresh air a lot during those years. Terry did all her interviews live. And the guests she interviewed were often from people doing book tours or people who were on a TV show called The Mike Douglas Show. By the time you started with Terry, how many years had you been at the station? Let me see. I started in 76, and maybe I was there a year and a half. And then I took the radio job. So then... In 1977, I started working with Terry. And at that point, salary-wise, were you surviving? Was it a decent salary? 
Yes, I'm glad to say it was. I don't remember what the amount was, but once I was hired by the station as a trainee, the radio and TV engineers were in a union. We were in the IBEW. We were a local broadcast group of International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. And there was a local broadcast group in Philadelphia. There were several TV stations, another radio station that was part of it. And our pay was very good. I started at first year rate, but it was a decent amount of money. Hmm. So I was very fortunate to have a great salary like that and benefits. So Terry started as a local person. And as NPR was taking shape now, NPR, I'm assuming at that time, was headquartered in Washington. Is that accurate? Yes. NPR was in Washington, but Terry was here. Terry was a local show at that point. And at some point, did WHYY become an NPR affiliate station? in the 70s, then by doing so, that would make Terry heard nationwide. Yes, but that didn't happen for a while. I think in about 1978, NPR starts doing their All Things Considered show, 1977 Mm -hmm. or 78. And WHYY was already a member of National Public Radio because we wanted to start airing a news program like that. And then over the years, as NPR built up, we took more and more of their programs. Eventually, they did the morning show called Morning Edition, and we took that too. And Terry did her show for many years before giving them any part of it. A man named Bill Simmering was our station manager, and he encouraged Terry to at least try doing a weekly half-hour module that she sent down to NPR on a reel-to-reel tape. In 1987, Terry began doing the one-hour show that she's been doing since then. But I think it was maybe 1985 that she started doing the half-hour shows. So NPR said, yes, we'd like to air them. I think it was called The Best of Fresh Air. Mm -hmm. And every week, an editor would edit what she wanted. I'd help them mix music with it. And we did a lot of reel-to-reel. We did a lot of multi-machine Mixing, we used a lot of reel-to-reels and recorded onto a third reel. So we'd play back everything and make a good 29 or 28 point something second show to send down to NPR. So that was the testing ground for her. Yeah. And then Terry and her executive producer has been with her since probably 1977. He started out as an intern. That's Danny Miller. You probably hear him on the credits. He's been with her since then. He's awesome. He's amazing. And then Danny and Terry, and I believe it was Bill Simmering at the time too, helped them to apply for a grant to do the national show. So when Terry was local, she had to depend on people coming through Philadelphia to be on the show. She didn't have a budget to ask someone to sit in a studio across the country at a radio station or at a studio. There just wasn't the budget to do that. So she Mm. was dependent on book tours or musicians that were in Philadelphia. But once they wrote for the the grant and they got it, then they had enough money to have guests sit down in New York City or San Francisco or LA, and they could get to us via high quality T1 lines or different kinds of ISDN equipment at that point. Even back then. I believe we had ISDN in 1987. Uh, Obviously, Terry Gross became a very successful radio personality, host, interviewer. But wasn't it unusual to have a female engineer behind that at that time? (sighs) 
Yes, yes, it was. It was. However, Terry, me, and Danny didn't think it was unusual. When Terry was doing the local show, I just thought she was doing really great interviews. And so that was great. And Terry never questioned the fact of me being an engineer at all. I mean, it just was very simpatico for that. Yeah. And then she had several producers who were women. And as the years went on, sometimes I would do the show. Sometimes another engineer would do the show. During a long time, it was guys, you know, it was men. Subsequently, Audrey Bentham came and she's been here for years. So our station has had several women and several women still work here. Who would you consider to be your audio mentor or mentors? Who is influencing you? Who is the person that you called up going, hey, I got a question for you? I guess it was one of the engineers at the station, a guy named Jay Goldman. He was a regular radio engineer for a while, worked the same shifts as I did, and then got to be a manager. So I would ask him lots of questions and he was very generous with his knowledge and would tell me how to do things or point me in the direction of of where to find the information. One thing, let let me just go back on one story which talks about me being a woman in in this area. So I was in radio for several years and the station decided to do a news show that was a half hour long and it was called 91 Report. So there was a engineer named Paul Keller and he did it. Jay Goldman did it, the man I was just speaking of. And there might've been one other engineer who did it. And I kept asking, I'd really love to do the show. Let me do it. And they'd all say, oh, I'm not so sure. <laughs> you know, it was like that. And I'd ask, I don't know whoever was the manager. I don't think it was Jay yet. And he said, well, we'll see. So they didn't let me do it. It was really annoying. And then at some point, Jay Goldman and Paul Keller were sick. And I had to do it. So so I did it. I was really anxious and it went fine. And then I ended up doing it for three weeks after that. So I had a stomach ache for a week and a half and everything went fine. And then after the next week and a half, no more stomach ache and I could do the show. So after that, they allowed me to do it. I was assigned to do it. So that was one piece of sexism from, you know, just like, can she do it? Will she really be able to do this? This is complicated. We're doing these multi-machine mixes, you know, and we have to get the levels right. And it's fast paced. It's news. Oh, we had carts, you know, you had to put record onto a card and change the carts out and all of that. And then I became proficient at it. And it was kind of a hoot to do it. It was just like really fun after a while. Some days were horrible, but mostly it, it was fun. I've heard a few stories over time of people wanting to do the thing they want to do, being a part of Fresh Air or recording a certain band or doing certain things. And miraculously, somebody calls in sick and you're forced (laughs) into the situation and it's trial by fire. Right, right. And then when everybody sees that, oh, oh, you got this. Okay, fine. You're in. Instead of more uh, a more gradual training and testing out. Yes. I've seen that happen a lot. So after that, then the best of fresh air was mixed on this multi-machine mixing, and that wasn't very complicated. The news show had so many more elements than that. And then Terry gets the, the grant, and I request to be the main engineer. And I got to be the main engineer, which was thrilling. So I got to help decide what equipment we were getting, 
do the research on how we put together a national show like that. Me and Danny went to National Public Radio to sit in on All Things Considered and Morning Edition and another show they had, Talk of the Nation with Ray Suarez. So we sat in on all those shows. Danny sat down with program people. I ended up sitting down with Mike Starling from the engineering department talking about more of the questions I had and just how to put together the equipment and and everything. And I also spoke to a man named Skip Peasy. I don't know if you came across that name. He was Mm -hmm. at National Public Radio for a long time. He's great. So he ends up being a really big influence on the way I do things or being able to call him up and say, oh, I've come across this problem and do you have any ideas for how I go about this? And what I also learned by going to National Public Radio, I got to meet a bunch of the engineers, people whose names I heard a lot. And currently they don't tell you the engineers' names. I think maybe it's just too much information. You know, Mm -hmm. you definitely know the news hosts and everything like that, but you don't hear the engineers. But in those days, it was all these different engineers who I kept hearing their names and it was thrilling to meet them. But what I learned also, I saw how the engineers work there and they were passionate about what they're doing. They wanted to get the levels right, the sound right, work with the best equipment that their budgets would allow. And they delved into the research for the equipment and every detail about it. If they was a telephone two-way. I guess they did a lot of that. They made sure they had the best equipment for that. Telos hybrids are just incredible. And they would tweak things until they got it right. There was a sense from the NPR engineers that they went to a further degree than my local engineers did. Or let me say my some of my TV engineers just didn't delve into it with as much passion. I think the radio engineers did. Maybe it was a matter of when I worked in television, let's say I was doing a production, I would be in videotape. I'd have to hit the videotape at the right time. And you sit around on headsets for a long time doing an hour show and you are called upon to do your job, to hit the videotape maybe three times during during a show. Mm-hmm. Or if I was doing audio, you know, I I would be there at the console making sure the levels were right and I had to change from one guest to another. There would be that switch, but mostly you're sitting on one guest and then there would be a playback. Someone else was adding that. So it was working with a team and you do have to be a, a team player. But in radio, I was mostly doing a shift by myself. I had to do everything. If I was doing fresh air, I was putting the reels up. I was recording. I was making sure the levels were right. I would connect on ISDN to another station. Per minute, I was busier per day. For each day per minute, I was busier mm-hmm. in a really good way, in a really integral way to being busier. As opposed to being in TV, it was just like, it wasn't a busy enough environment for me in terms of doing production. And I like being busy and I like perfecting things and trying to do things, you know, do it one way one day and then do it better another day. And I got that a lot from the engineers at National Public Radio. A lot of us who do music break down and study music production, but if you look into voice production and you listen to the quality of audio that comes across NPR, Fresh Air in particular, or any of those shows like Morning Edition or whatever, if you appreciate good audio, you hear how great this sounds. What do you think's at the core of that besides, of course, the the quality of the engineer? For NPR, they definitely have the budget to buy high quality equipment. And it's geared to radio. It's it's not 
what you'd have in a recording studio. So the, the consoles they have, they went through a iteration of digital. And before that, it was a really awesome analog console. The microphones they use are high quality. They have used a U87 microphone for years, a Neumann U87. And they have studios that are done well. They're done by acousticians that really take care of the sound that they have. So you, if you have a really good studio, you could put a U87 microphone in there and the host sounds great. We tried using a U87 here for Terry. First in our old studios before we outfitted her room to be a, a national show. And it sounded horrible because our studios were just like, maybe it wasn't square, but it was a rectangle box. The acoustics weren't cared for. And unfortunately, I'm sorry to say, when we did a build out here in 2000, we didn't have the acoustic designer come until after everything was designed. To great chagrin to me, the budget didn't allow it and the people who were doing the design just didn't take into account that you should have an acoustic designer come in really early so that you get the air handling correct, you get the treatment on the walls correct so that you absorb sound, you absorb the right frequencies, you make sure that the reflections aren't going all over the place. You know, you just do that in a better way. So the acoustic designer came in and he had lots of recommendations, which then our engineering vice president said, I can't do it. I don't have the money to do it. You know, mm. it's really, really frustrating. So we, we couldn't put Terry on a U87. For years, she's used an RE20. And currently, she's using a TLM. I have to go look at the number. So it's a, it's a better microphone now, and it's great to have it. And the RE20s, with our acoustics, worked fine. It is interesting. I've, I've often noticed that since podcasts are just all the rage now, manufacturers are putting these podcast packages together and it's always centered around a condenser mic and and I keep saying right. you don't want to do that people have crappy sounding rooms and those condenser mics are just going to accentuate that crappy sounding room right exactly at this point how many years have you been in radio now today 44 years and I've been at the station for 44 years at WHYY for 44 years yeah and what have been the biggest challenges in that 44 years? I think the challenge has been to get to know the equipment, to work with five, six engineers here. I also do training for other engineers. Mm. And also I come back and work with the engineers just to get the best sound. Or they'll call me during the day and say, I'm having a problem. Can you come and help me? So I come running. Invariably, during a week, many things just don't go as planned. Some equipment needs work on. Over the years, we kept a Windows NT system working until two months ago. Oh, my God. It, it, <laughs> a Windows NT we, system. With floppies. We, we couldn't get in there with a floppy, but by some miracle, it has worked. We've maintained various components and various boards we had to send out to eBay to get a rack panel of stuff. And we had to swap out power supplies and we had to swap things around to make 10 different locations work. Oh, I mean, in 44 years, you must have seen, from a technological standpoint alone, you have gone through so many different bits of technology that it must be hard to keep up with everything that's changing. And I'm sure it's changing even faster now. 
It is changing faster. It's been a challenge to keep up with all the equipment. So much of the equipment is computer-based or you use a GUI to get to the panel where you change settings and, and different things. So we use ISDN. We have one ISDN unit at our station now, and we've replaced that kind of connectivity with different stations and studios with IP codecs. So we have various Comrex, we have Tyline, and those really have come in abundance just this year because most of the telephone companies do not want to keep the copper wires for the ISDN codecs going. And many of the stations in National Public Radio and at the headquarters are changing out to use these IP-based codecs. So that's a whole different technology to get to know. Now, being in public radio for that period of time and being in the union, Mm -hmm. when you retire, will you get a pension? (laughs) Well, with the union, I won't get a pension. We continue to be in the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. Uh However, we don't have a broadcast local anymore. We're just integrated with the rest of the people who are doing wiring and buildings and all across the city and everything. Those electrical workers have a pension. Their pay structure is different and their connection to the union is different. WHYY doesn't have a pension, but I have a TIA CREF account that I've had since we had Vanguard at first when I joined the union, and then that got changed over to Tia Kref. So my money has been invested well. I give the max I can give each pay period to that, and WHYY matches whatever I give. They mm. match it. So I've been fortunate to have WHYY to be able to match whatever I give. So I, I feel like I will be okay when I retire. And I can't say that every radio engineer across the country could say that. I feel to be in a very lucky position that way. Yeah. What would be your advice to somebody who is interested in a career in audio, in radio in particular, getting in now? What I would tell people is to go to a a school, maybe like full sale. I don't know that there's a school in particular for radio engineering, mm-hmm. but I, I tell people to learn an editing system inside and out. At our station, we use Pro Tools. At different stations, they use different digital audio workstations. But get to know your digital audio workstation inside and out. If you like doing sound in clubs, do that really well. Learn your equipment. Learn what you put into your speakers, you know, how you get the most out of it. Do equalization. Learn how to equalize things. Whatever side of the the audio craft you're interested in, do it to the nth degree. Know all your equipment. How has the work-life balance thing worked out for you over the years? I mean, this is essentially... It's a nine-to-five job, is it not? Right. Basically, it's a nine-to-five job. We're doing fresh air for many years. It was basically nine-to-five. I don't remember what hours we were doing it exactly. And then when I became the supervisor, it's basically nine-to-five, except for those times when something's wrong and I have to come into the station and I get called uh, wee hours of the morning or late at night. And I am there to help people make things happen. But for family life, yeah, I sometimes work long hours. I try to be eight hours and mostly I'm paid, I'm paid for eight hours. I'm a working supervisor. I'm still in the union. I've had a family life, which has been wonderful. I have a husband. It was the boyfriend that I was talking about. Oh. We got married. 
<laughs> so that's been great. But you got rid of the cutlass. We got rid of the cutlass. No more avocado green cutlass. <laughs> no way. And his mother kept it. <laughs> and I have two kids. So that's something else that being in the union, I had my first child when I was 31. So I was able to work at this job for a while and then realized that I wanted to stay at the job and have a baby. So I negotiated with the union to put into the contract that there would be a leave of absence. So what I asked for was a basic six months of paid leave, which I think is just for maybe state or federal guidelines to have a six month paid period and then to have eight months off and get my job back when I came back. So I did that with the first child and it was excruciatingly difficult to go back to work. But (laughs) I got back to work after two weeks. I said, oh, now I feel a little more organized and I don't have to be, you know, with a child every day. And we had great childcare, daycare centers, and that worked out. And then the couple of women here that have had children have loved that they got eight months off. And I had another baby too. And it's awesome. I've hardly met any people that get that amount of time off and get their jobs back. That's incredible. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Non-paid, but you get your job back. But I get my job back. You know, it's it's highly unusual nowadays for anybody to stay in a position that long. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, it's been a, a great career. Have you? Do you ever get burned out and just get tired of audio and radio and think, I should go do something else? You know, I haven't gotten tired of it. Three weeks ago, I cut down to three days a week. It took me two years to negotiate that. I had to get the union to buy into it. My shop steward did that work. He got the union to buy into it, to agree to it. They said, oh, she's just a cog in the wheel. Who cares? Why should I fight for this? It could be anybody or something. And then luckily my friend Al, my shop steward said, no, this is special. She does specialized work and the company wants her to, I believe the company wants her to stay, wants those skills to be used, wants her for her skills and the way she gets around the station and works with people and works with the equipment. And we have to do this. So the union came around and finally I started doing this in in the beginning of September, I guess. And it's been great. Hmm. I do have other interests. You know, I'm still listening to music. I love film. I run, walk. I just got my bicycle fixed. So I'll be (laughs) riding my my bicycle again. I love outdoor stuff. I I love astronomy. You know, I've been following the planets and the stars around lately. When the sky is clear, I'm just, I'm up at five in the morning looking at what's out there and looking at different things like that. So I have a lot of interests. It's not that I'm just here. Right. You're not not just a, a single track person. No, no, I'm not. So I have other interests. And currently, what I'm using my free time for is voter engagement. I feel that we have to change administrations in in a strong, strong way. So that's what I'm doing in my free time and other things, too. How has COVID affected WHYY? In a big way. In a big way. So Terry Gross works from home. Our call-in host, Marty Moscoane, works at home. And Dave Davies, who does Fresh Air, he started out working at home, but then decided to come into the station. Most of our reporters and producers are not here. Some of the staff rotates, like our IT department rotates. And then all the guests we call are at their homes. So we can't rely on the sound of a good studio, either putting them at a National Public Radio Bureau or a studio or another radio station. They're at home. We've been using Comrex. Terry has a Comrex at her house, so it dials into 
one of our Comrex units here. And she sounds very good. And she's using an RE20 microphone at her house. Our other host is using a Comrex also. With the guests, what's working out the best is Tyline. And I think it's called Record It. So you download an app on your phone and the app will record you. Plus the app connects to our codec here at the station. So it's not a telephone call. It's audio from the iPhone connecting to the codec at the station. And then on the Axia console, we bring up the codec and it's a high quality audio. But in addition to that, the guest records themselves on the iPhone and then they upload that audio. And then Audrey Bentham, the engineer, decides what works better, what she recorded on the console from the codec, or she'll do a tape sync and use the audio from what the guest recorded on their iPhone. Hmm. So that's been an incredible asset to have that. And there are a couple of other devices. We've bought the tie line to do that. And that works really, really well. So when we were in lockdown from the beginning of March till I guess they called some of us back at the end of May, I was at home, not able to do that much. I could do maintenance on my audio vaults because I could get to them. I could do maintenance on some other systems, but I wasn't being utilized as much as I could be. So in the end of May, I came back to the station. But to have the host at home, Terry would often, when she's here at the station, she'd sit down with guests for about an hour, 45 minutes or an hour. And often the audio would be always edited just to fit into segments, not for content, but it was just to fit into segments. And some placement of things might change just for the flow of the interview. But now Terry or Dave Davies, who sits down with a guest, often sits down for two hours because sometimes there'll be a connectivity issue. Mm -hmm. You know, the Comrex line will go or the tie line will not be connected. We have to call them back. And then there would be two producers per session and they'd sit in the control room typing up all the questions and answers. So Terry and Dave, they read the books, they come up with the questions, they write write all the questions themselves. The producers help find the guests. You know, they're, they're looking through newspapers, articles, magazines, books, music. They're sifting through so much information and listening to the news and just doing whatever it takes to, to find guests that will be interesting and and really good guests. And then they do pre-interviews. But then the producer sits down and does all the questions and answers. They have a a script from themselves. And then after an interview, it it would be that Terry, the two producers, and Danny Miller, the executive producer, who's listening to everything in his office, would talk for at least a half an hour to figure out how they want to position the elements in the interview. So currently, the producers are not at the station. So we have to get them to be able to hear everything. We're using Microsoft Teams to do that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we just have someone call in to a Telos telephone hybrid, and then the person at home on the iPhone calls other people on that. So we devise ways, we get around things that don't work. We make it work. This is a challenging time for businesses in general. I mean, I think radio is having to really struggle technologically. Yes, yes, certainly. I'm sure management's rethinking, like, how can we do this in the future? I know. And do you need everyone coming into the station? I'm under the assumption that we don't. Like reporters and producers, they haven't been back. They're in a different union. They just formed it a year ago. It's SAG-AFTRA. And 
they didn't think it was safe to come back. And the bunch of us that are here, I feel like we're not taking a lot of risk because there's not a lot of us here. That's good from our standpoint. So Danny and a bunch of engineers and Dave Davies comes into the station for fresh air. Mm. And then there's some engineers who are doing TV work, but the reporters and producers are not back. I don't really think they need to be here. They need to have a meeting with their editor, know what stories they're going out on so they could have a Zoom meeting, do their stories. They could call people from home. They do go out and interview people. They do go out into the street. When there were all the protests happening, they would go into the street and interview people. They tried using shotgun mics so they wouldn't have to get really close to people. Mm -hmm. But there are actual interviews taking place with reporters doing that, conducting the interviews. And then they can get their audio to the station. It's FTP, it's other ways that they do it. Even the Pro Tools, all the Fresh Air producers have Pro Tools at their house, either with station laptops or other ways to have Pro Tools. And over the internet, they get their finished audio here. So they edit, they get it here to the station. Yeah. It works. You're in a sector of audio that we've had a few people on from radio, but you're one of the rock stars of that area. And so it's it's a real treat to get to talk with you. Thank you. It's really been great to talk to you. Thanks for all the great questions and being interested. Thank you again. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And at prices a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Joyce Lieberman here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. My ask is that you stop on by workingclassaudio.com. There you'll find a link to the iTunes Music Store where you can leave a positive review of the show if you enjoy the show. And uh, other than that, I think it's time to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical voice of Mr. Chuck Smith there at the top of the show. Stop on by LinkedIn and connect with me there. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. (laughs) 